as the industry has matured over the past 10 years, there's been these splinter groups that are popping up who are only representing this much of the industry. And they're only speaking for, you know, community solar. They're only speaking for utility scale. But to the average government employee or legislator, there's just solar. They don't understand the nuances and the differences. So they're like, who are you and why are you different from so-and-so? And I think it gets very confusing for them. And then they just shut down. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited on this episode of the podcast to interview Caitlin Savage and Stephanie Johnson. And my co-host on this episode of the podcast is Nate Giovanelli. He has a company called Giovanelli Incorporated. They help solar businesses grow faster. And also check out his podcast. It's called The Limitless Podcast. He comes out with an episode every Monday and Tuesday. And he's been a co-host on, I think, seven to eight episodes of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to have two amazing people on the podcast who are doing great work in the solar industry. Caitlin Savage is a senior vice president of project development at Hudson Energy, a leading utility scale solar and solar plus storage platform with three gigawatts of renewable energy assets under development in PGM, MISO, and other U.S. markets. Hudson is a proud partner of Great Bay Renewables. Stephanie Johnson is the executive director at Chesa. Chesa means the Chesapeake Solar and Storage Association. They represent the solar industry in Maryland, the District of Columbia, Delaware, and Virginia. Chesa is having their conference coming up not in the near future. It's called the Solar Focus Conference. It's actually November 15th to 17th at Lord Baltimore Hotel in Baltimore, Maryland. I've been to this event. Now, this is my third year going to this event, and I went last year. It's a great event if you really want to learn about the mid-Atlantic solar market. I will actually be moderating a panel on agrovoltaics at this conference, so definitely I hope to see you there. There's so much great content that came from this interview. We really focus on the mid-Atlantic solar market. We focus also on many different aspects of what's happening in the industry. Some of the things that we talk about is how the Inflation Reduction Act is going to help the solar industry, siting and permitting, how there needs to be a lot of talent coming into the industry to be able to reach the goals that different states have. We also talk about RE+. That's the biggest solar show in the U.S. and in the world. It's happening September 11th to the 13th. I will as well be at that show. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Let's get into it. There's so much going on in the solar industry. It could be hard to keep up. Never mind, get ahead. New technologies, new ways to sell, policy changes, the Inflation Reduction Act, high inflation, high interest rates. We only have 30 seconds, so I'll stop there. But whether you want to up your sales game, streamline your operations, or to be a more effective solar leader, Empower is the one-day virtual event to help you improve your solar business. Join industry leaders, policy experts, and solar professionals on August 16th to investigate issues that matter to your solar business. Register for free at aurorasolar.com slash empower2023. We'll also have this on the notes of the podcast. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Benoa, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to have my co-host, Nate Giovanelli. Nate has actually been on the podcast several times, and you should also check out his podcast. Nate, welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast. Awesome being here, Benoit, as always. And can you tell our listeners about your podcast? I listen to it every week on a Monday or Tuesday. You release it on Mondays, right? Generally, I try to. Thanks for the plug. That's called Limitless with Nathan Giovanelli. I usually get most of my views on LinkedIn. So if you're interested, check it out. It's really just meant to be words of wisdom and affirmation for my kids. It's stuff that they ask me during the week that I find inspirational or just interesting, write it down, and then I'll either tell a quick story or give some tips about just life lessons that I give to my children. It's really less about renewables and more just about getting after it. I enjoy it. I actually learn stuff all the time that I actually try to incorporate into my life. And I love the platform. It's not just for your kids. It's also really helpful. And I'm always looking forward to it on Mondays when you record it. So that's awesome. And it would be great too for our audience who are not familiar. I think you've co-hosted or been on the podcast 70 times to briefly talk about your background and what you're doing. As you said, I lost count. It's somewhere on there. If you want to get them in a concise snippet, you can go to my website, jovanelli.io. It'll be in the notes. I'm not going to spell it. Then all the episodes will be there. But my background is I have about a decade in renewables. I got really my feet wet starting a residential TPO company, which is a sister company to IGS Energy. It's the largest independent energy supplier. Then I went on and started my own consulting business. I run business development for Enterflow, which is a rapidly growing residential software platform that's focused on taking the soft costs out of solar. So I do that. I think we had uh, about $7.5 billion of solar loans go through our platform so far in the last, say, 24 months. I do a whole host of other things as well. I'm an advisor to a few companies, a manufacturer, an installer, uh, really trying to solve low-income residential solar solutions. And then I also run a new residential solar TPO company that's going to be focused on using the transferability to give some equity back to the installers. And that would be its own episode. So we can chat about that later. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to talk about that. That's going to come out in a future podcast, the Solar Maverick podcast. We just came out with the podcast on transferability from Adam Shirley, who's a tax partner at Foley Lardner. Obviously, like that's a huge incentive with the Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA. We'll have that as well in the notes of the podcast. But we're really here. We have two amazing guests, Nate, right? And I'm glad that they agreed to do this. I don't know if you want to make the introduction or if you want to do it. Let's start with Stephanie. Why don't you introduce yourself and I'll ask some questions if I think you need to fill in some gaps. But I'm sure Stephanie Johnson's the executive director of Chestnut. We're excited to have you. Yeah, that would be great if you could make the intro. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me, Benoit. My name is Stephanie Johnson. I'm the executive director of the Chesapeake Solar and Storage Association. We're a recognized SIA affiliate and we cover Maryland, D.C., Virginia and Delaware. And I've been hoping to meet with Benoit and Caitlin and do this podcast for almost a year. So very excited to be here. That's great. And we have Caitlin Savage, who I've known now for almost 10 years. It's amazing how time flies by. She's a senior vice president of project development at Hudson Energy. It would be great, Caitlin. Welcome. It's her first podcast, so I could see her do many podcasts or her own podcast, but no pressure, Caitlin. Well, I've been waiting 10 years to do this podcast and never <laughs> was even envisioned. So I'm Caitlin Savage. As Benoit mentioned, I'm Senior Vice President of Project Development with Hudson Energy. We're headquartered here in New York. We're a utility-scale solar 
project developer and solar plus storage. We have projects primarily in PJM, but we're also starting to expand in other markets. So we have a very heavy footprint in Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New York, and a number of other states. Hudson is also a proud partner of Great Bay Renewables. Um, we have a royalty investment agreement with. Awesome. That's a great introduction. Nate, you want to start growing them or asking? <laughs> yeah, I know. We talked earlier and I was like, wasn't sure how much talking that would actually have to do. I thought I was just, you know, I'm going to sit here and hide behind the mic because at the pre-interview, it's like everyone was doing, I was trying to hope we can't talk over each other. But I think, as you said, so PJM is Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, when we talk about that and what that market is. So I think one of the first questions I would just have in general, I mean, it's been the hottest topic, I think, for the last year is the IRA, which is the Inflation Reduction Act that passed last, I think it was August or September. And we talked a little bit about the transferability in the intro, and that's derived from the IRA. But outside of that, I guess maybe, I don't know if we want to start with Caitlin, like what opportunities you see with the IRA in your business and what guidance is still missing. And you guys can split that up into two parts if you want. But I think that's what I'd be most interested in starting with. So my role at Hodson is really focused on the ground and kind of getting our projects to NTP. So I think we see a lot of questions and interests in local communities about the impact that solar and the IRA funding is having on the growth of renewables, particularly in rural and agricultural areas where we tend to cite these utility scale projects. But I think Stephanie could probably talk more about some of the outstanding guidance and maybe what her members are seeing in the market related to IRA. I think on our end, there's been a lot more certainty for the tax framework post-IRA. There are remaining questions in lining up state and federal frameworks that we still have to work out, particularly with community solar subscribers, the LMI requirements in Maryland. Right now, there's concern that they're not exactly matching up and developers will have to figure out which guidance to go with and they'll probably go with federal guidance But really what we're seeing is less uncertainty with the IRA funding and more with how they're going to build projects to actually qualify to get that funding. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially when it comes to the wage requirements and things like that. I guess Hudson isn't as involved on the EPC side, but I know that's a big challenge for those who are working on the projects after. So have you started seeing an uptick yet? Interest in projects, interest in in financing, in other things that were sort of lacking in that COVID era, I think, especially for utility scale, right? That really got hit the hardest. Are you seeing that subside or is that relevant to the IRA? Is it because of the IRA? Is it because of maybe supply constraints? Just generally, what is your optimism for the market through the rest of this year and through next? So on my end, there's been a huge influx of interests from developers who want to come into Maryland, who want to come in Virginia. Both of these markets have very different issues that they're facing. So in the PJM market, the queue has backlogged everybody. So even though developers are interested in moving in and building projects, they're stuck in the PJM queue. And then in Maryland, for the distributed generation side, there's a lot of interest in building community solar projects now that we have a permanent community solar program here in Maryland. But the issue is so many counties in Maryland limit the ability to do ground-mounted projects. So we have a number of counties, about three that are friendly to solar. And then of the other 20 counties, most are either vague or they have moratoriums or de facto bans. One county has enacted a rule that requires 10 miles between projects. So obviously that's a de facto ban. And even though there's so much interest and there's so much need, the community solar projects that we do have online, the subscribers are backlogged. So there's more interest than there is availability. 
we have this interest and there's so much ability to get back to the community with these projects. And there's a 20% reduction in the utility bill for LMI subscribers in Maryland for community solar. And those folks can't sign up because we can't build the projects. So that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, I think we're seeing very similar, more interest than availability on the utility scale front is a very good way to put it. And it's interesting. There's, I think, a lot more certainty on the tax equity side, just that those credits have been renewed. But there's also so much uncertainty, like Stephanie was saying, on the interconnection delays, supply chain constraints, not just even related to solar, but even like transformers and interconnection materials that are required. So it's interesting to see how that's kind of evolving and shaking out. I do think the manufacturing components of the IRA and the incentives there for domestic manufacturing of panels. I mean, we're seeing a lot of parts of the Midwest manufacturing related to batteries and EVs. I think that's all very interesting because it ties into some of the issues that Stephanie mentioned on the county level. The challenges you're seeing when it comes to permitting, whether it's community solar, shared solar in Virginia or utility scale projects. I think maybe we'll get into this later in the podcast, but what is in it for the community that is absorbing the footprint of these projects. And I think having the jobs and the growth in manufacturing is a really important component of that in terms of employing local communities and economic development. So I think it all kind of ties together at the end of the day. So not as rough of a ride on the solar coaster as it was, I think, 10 years ago, but you and Mendoy can probably speak better to that, Nate. It's actually your last statement there was a good segue because I wanted to dive a little bit deeper and ask Stephanie about, you mentioned there's benefits to the community, right? There's interest in funding these projects. So you seem to have a lot of these components. So why would a county then not allow a community solar project? I'm asking out of ignorance. I don't know. We've done a very good job in specific counties in selling the benefits that they get, you know, the tax benefits, the jobs that come with these projects, the lowered costs to consumers. But in Maryland, there's been a push for conservation of a lot of agricultural land, a lot of land that was previously agricultural but can no longer grow things, but they don't change the soil types. So you have farmers who can't grow anything on this land, so they're not able to have the economic benefit of an actual farm, but then they're not able to build solar either. So there's a disconnect there where there's conservationists who mean well, but they don't understand the realities of the farming, where the farmers have a better idea of what that looks like and how they can co-site some solar projects with the better pieces of their land that can still produce crops. So you see these movements to conserve large portions of a county that could otherwise be utilized for solar. And there's also a sense that there's enough rooftops to meet the demand, which there's not enough rooftops in Maryland to meet our RPS goals. We have to do a better job of explaining how many ground-mounted projects we'll need to meet 100% renewable energy generation in-state and actually provide those statistics, do studies. And I'm a part of the Solar Task Force at MEA, the Maryland Energy Administration, and that's what we've been charged with doing over the next year. So I'm hoping through our work at MEA, we'll be able to come back present these statistics and say, you're going to need this much land mass to meet these goals. That's interesting. Have you seen any agrovoltaics yet where they actually just grow crops under the panels? I've heard about it, read about it, but I haven't actually seen it in practice. Is that a real thing or? I've seen pictures in Germany of apple orchards and solar. I've seen them in person. Here in Maryland, we have pollinators, we have sheep. It's the same in Virginia where there's pollinators and sheep, but I haven't seen specific crops 
I think there's a disconnect in what type of crops grow well under solar panels and what type of crops we want to grow in this region. Seems like there's a lot of research going on right now with especially co-op extensions in universities. We were talking to Virginia State University earlier this week and their head of agriculture. Their Department of Agriculture is actually creating an agrovoltaic certificate that'll be available to their freshman students that are part of the agriculture department there. I think that is very cool. And there's also, like I said, a lot of active research and to Stephanie's point, what type of crops work well. Going back to the point of the community benefits, I've met so many different individuals in the Midwest who have jobs now that are related to like solar grazing or vegetation management and pollinator habitats that I think that's a key piece that provides the environmental benefits, economic benefits. And it also kind of resonates, I think, with the values and the histories of a local community, which I think is a really important part when you're coming in as a new form of development that people are maybe inherently skeptical of. Yeah, you guys have both brought up something that I definitely want to put a pin in and circle back to, which is labor. And I've been beating that drum since last year at RE Plus about the real need to make sure that we're attracting and maintaining talent. So I want to circle back to that. But first, Keelan, you'd said something earlier I wanted to just ask about out of my own curiosity, because I'm a little disconnected from the utility side, mostly focused on residential solar these days. Obviously, through 2020, massive supply constraint, right? Panels are opposite the way that you would expect them to go. They're increasing significantly. And residential has the ability for the most part, to absorb some of those costs. And therefore, I think it performed better than a lot of the other markets. And you had mentioned that you're still seeing some supply constraint and then you caveated that it was with transformers. What are you guys seeing with panels now? I've seen just a precipitous drop in the last two months in panel pricings. It seems like the market's actually, the backlog kind of all came through in a slug and it feels almost oversupplied. Anecdotally, I'm not super close to it, but that's what I've been hearing and seeing. I was just curious how that translates to utility scale. Like, are you seeing the same thing with panels? And is it more just the heavy, like the major equipment on the utility side that's causing those constraints? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm also a little bit hands off on our procurement, but I will say last year at SPI or RE+, there was a lot of panic and conversations about contracts that couldn't be fulfilled because of rising panel costs and kind of a scramble, I think, for developers to procure those contracts. But I think, as you were saying, the market seems to have corrected itself a little bit just in the last few months with the supply chain catching up. What I've heard secondhand, I think, is that the interconnection, the transformers, those backlogs are really what are holding up projects, not just even necessarily interconnection upgrades related to individual utility scale projects, but I think mass deployment of renewable energy in the U.S. is going to require really big strengthening of the transmission system. And that's something that potentially is being delayed due to supply chain constraints. I see you nodding, Stephanie. Do you agree? Like, how do we get out of this backlog that you guys have mentioned several times? Is there a way out? What's the solution? I've talked with a number of utilities who struggle get enough transformers. And this is an issue that Chess is working closely on in Maryland, particularly with grid reliability and the deployment of DERs to stabilize the grid as we're moving toward electrification. And I think a lot of regular people don't necessarily understand the risks that are associated with putting more EVs on the grid and electrifying more homes, getting heat pumps. The more we do that and we're not planning, the more transformers blow up. And then the utility company has a huge lead time to get these transformers. And sometimes it's a year to get a new transformer. We don't have enough domestic manufacturing of transformers. I went to a site in Virginia where they produced transportable ones, but most of the equipment comes from China. Yeah. So let's circle back now to labor because talk about all of the jobs that solar creates. I totally agree. Some of the projections I've seen, whether it's through IREC, which is does like a solar census or 
Sia or others have seen, I actually just posted on LinkedIn yesterday about this, said they're going to need millions. I think it's a little verbose, but there's going to need to be a lot of workers in the space in order to meet the demand of the current administration, whether, you know, it is 30, whatever it is, you know, going, moving toward decarbonization, we'll say more renewables. And what I see is that a significant amount of firms across the country have for some time been experiencing a hard time getting candidates. I'm wondering, you know, with record low unemployment, um, it's still extremely low and has been for some time. Like, where are these workers going to come from as we continue to build out not only the solar, but the infrastructure you're talking about that's needed to reform and bolster the grid? From my perspective, I think there's been a big push, at least here in Maryland, for an offshore wind workforce. And I've been talking with different agencies on how we can expand that to be more holistic in our approach to electrification. So if we're training someone to do offshore wind, we could have a couple of days where they learn how to install solar PV. We can teach them how to do, you know, make it a holistic thing where they're learning how to be a part of this new electrification workforce. So if there's not an offshore wind job in six months for them, there would definitely be a solar job. So being able to give folks the tools to pivot where they're needed in this workforce. Yeah, I think something that we've thought a lot about at Hodson is kind of planting a seed also early on in K through 12. So I think people don't realize outside of the industry what a wide range of jobs there are related to renewable energy and electrification. So, I mean, we're hosting Hodson has a new field office in Bellfounds in Ohio, and we're hosting monthly lunches with different guest speakers that work in different facets of the energy industry. And even for me, as someone who's worked in solar for a while now, as you list out the different aspects, whether it's people involved in manufacturing of solar panels or people involved on the EV side or people involved in the construction of sites or renewable energy financing or DG versus CNI versus utility scale, you can have an environmental career in renewable energy. You can have a career in civil. I think there's just such a wide range of jobs. So I think some organizations like Repowering Schools are doing some very interesting work with engaging kids and kind of planting that seed. So maybe there's not a degree in agrivoltaics at the local co-op extension, but there are degrees in law or finance or environmental science that students can pursue and then kind of take those skills and bring them into the renewable energy industry. I'll say from personal experience, some of my favorite colleagues who have been the most effective advocates for us and most effective people on the ground for our solar projects have been people who come from outside of the solar industry. So whether it's former local government officials or people who have previously worked in agriculture, those people, I think there are a lot of skills that we need to bring into the industry. So someone who might not necessarily have five or 10 years of experience in solar, but has worked in local government for several years, I think brings a huge value to the industry. So it would be exciting to see more companies kind of embrace that. And I think a lot have, especially with hiring veterans and different programs like that. I agree. I mean, some of the first projects I did in the early days when I was doing small CNI were schools. And we always made sure we gave them a smart board or something where they could then do curriculum around, whether it was a high school or elementary school, they could bring the kids in because those degrees didn't exist when Benoit and I were in college. I think I took one of the first renewable energy classes at University of Delaware to fact check that, but it felt like it was the first. And it was just kind of like, hey, just go do a project I did in mine on PV versus solar thermal. So 
It's funny because I imagine if I were a student nowadays, let's say I'm like 15 years old and I'm looking online, like I want to work in the solar industry. You might just think that there's just an electrical engineering degree, which there is. I mean, NC State, I think, has been one of the pioneers, right, with their renewable energy center. I probably don't have the right skill set to be an electrical engineer, but there's so many other areas of solar that I think we can bring kids in on and, and kind of plant that seed in the future. Yeah, I deal with a lot of finance and attorneys for that matter. So there's definitely a lot of paths you can go. So I know we zoomed way out. I think we should probably zoom back into, we talked a little bit about just general challenges in the queue and we'll call it the national state level in conflicting interpretations of the IRA or what have you. And we talked a little bit on the county level, but we should probably dive a little bit deeper into what you're seeing there. Stephanie, you'd mentioned earlier, just some of the disconnects, I guess, for lack of a better word, that exist between maybe not only the developers and the people in solar with the community and then the community with the local government, but what other challenges are you seeing at the county level? I'd say across Virginia and Maryland, one issue is each county can come up with its own rules. So that makes it very difficult for developers who are trying to plan their permitting process to meet these different rules. And a lot of times they're very similar, but they're just slightly different. So the setbacks are this many feet different, that many feet different. So there's reinventing the wheel each time you're going into a new county. I see a lot of value in streamlining that process and working together with the counties to come up with like some basic requirements that make sense. And then developers can have an easier time and reduce costs and timelines as they go in and start to build these projects and make sure that it's a way that fits with the county's goals and it isn't stepping on anyone's toes, but it's common sense regulations that make sense for everybody. Yeah. Caitlin had brought up before an issue. This is kind of a weird one for me because actually, although as a chemical engineer, do have a professional engineering license in water management and specifically stormwater management, which I did in a previous life for a decade before I came over to renewables. And you'd mentioned that there are some issues with stormwater runoff and other things cited for these large projects. I'm just curious what your take on that is and how you're overcoming those challenges. I see the stormwater issues intersecting very closely with what our discussion earlier on labor. Some of the first few solar projects in Virginia that were constructed, the PMs were coming in from California and Arizona because there wasn't that skilled labor in Virginia. They weren't used to the environmental conditions, I think, in Virginia, and they hadn't previously permitted stormwater for projects of that scale and that level of disturbance. So I think there are a lot of lessons learned previously. And also more generally as an industry, I think Stephanie and Chessa have a very strong interest in ensuring solar development is done right, I think, and ensuring kind of the longevity of the industry. But I think to some extent, it's always inevitable, one, that there will be mistakes as you learn. And hopefully there are lessons learned from those mistakes. But we as an industry have a responsibility to almost control the bad actors. And when there have been those violations in Virginia on stormwater, I think the fines that have been issued by whether it's DEQ or EPA have done a really good job of ensuring that those lessons are learned. And I think that's one of the ways we as an industry should be supporting environmental regulation on solar. As I mentioned, I think now most of the PMs are coming from that state. They're used to the amount of whether it's the wetlands that are different from maybe somewhere like California in the desert or the amount of rainfall or the types of soils. Luckily, we aren't seeing the same 
amount of stormwater concerns in the Midwest, just to the geography of it. There aren't the same topographic issues that you see in Virginia. And there are just a lot of, I think, good practices in place. Something Stephanie and I were actually talking about earlier this week is maybe a role that clean energy buyers can play in encouraging responsible environmental solutions when it comes to construction of these projects. So I think the Clean Energy Buyers Association is working on a program called Beyond the Megawatt that measures some external characteristics that maybe haven't been as closely incorporated in asset sales or PPA conversations. And I think that will be very interesting to see how big clean energy buyers consider the environmental benefits, whether that's agrivoltaics or grazing or pollinator habitats or additional stormwater considerations in the process of purchasing those projects and purchasing the power, because I think that could be a really important influence in leveraging with the developers and EPC. Hearing all the challenges for these larger scale projects reminds me of why I like residential solar, because it's like, I wonder how you guys get anything done almost. And then on top of that, I know we touched on a little bit in the very beginning, but I personally have had projects, community solar projects, some of the first ones up in Massachusetts, where you think you're doing something good for the community and you have people that would show up and they don't want you to cut trees down to build a solar array. So it's like you're always seemingly at odds sort of with everyone. And I'm just curious, Stephanie, like, how do you achieve and how do you look at getting buy-in from the community that, yes, this is helpful. It's helping residents save money. It's helping support the grid during stress times. How do you view that and getting other people excited about it? I think one of our biggest challenges here in Maryland is not letting perfection be the enemy of the good, so to speak. So there's this disconnect between understanding that a coal fire plant or natural gas that's in someone's home has a huge environmental impact in a negative way, but it's already here. So they don't need to protest that because it's already enacted, whereas solar is new and solar is replacing that. And solar and wind are really the two main most clean alternatives to these things, but it's new. So folks see an opportunity to try to hold us to almost an impossible standard of perfection, never cut down a single tree, never have any kind of impact on the land when you're constructing a solar project. But if we were to try to meet those perfect standards, we'd have very little clean energy and we'd be stuck with very dirty fuel sources. So I think highlighting, you know, the benefits, not just the jobs, but to the climate. And if we're going to move toward electrification, there will be some give and take, like with anything. So highlighting that this movement toward a new era in energy is inevitable, that we're going to have some heartburn. Some folks won't want it cited in their community. They think, I support clean energy, but can you cite it in Pennsylvania? It's like, well, no, we need to cite it everywhere so that we can meet these clean energy goals. Empower is the only one-day event to help you improve your solar business. Join industry leaders, policy experts, and solar professionals on August 16th to investigate the issues that matter to your solar business, like how to attach more storage to solar sales, the latest in solar financing, how to most efficiently generate leads, using tech to streamline workflows, how to understand federal and state incentives. Oh, sorry, just thinking about more of the issues that keep solar professionals up at night. The point is we're all dealing with a lot right now. So why make the time to check out Aurora's conference on August 16th? Well, here's a couple of reasons why I'm attending. It's free. I mean, that never hurts, right? It's virtual. You're not stuck at a conference center all day. You can tune into the sessions you want to and go on with your business. There are sessions that count for NABSEP continuing education credits, so you can knock that out at the same time. The content is really worthwhile. I know I'm going to learn something or get a different perspective that I could use in my business. And of course, you'll hear from me 
on a panel covering policy. So I hope you'll be there on August 16th. You could register at Aurora Solar slash Empower 2023. It'll also be in the notes of the podcast. Thank you. So I think where I'd like to kind of go to, I know Benoit and I usually end talking about what you see as the future, right? Like, how do we overcome? We talk about a lot of challenges, but how do you overcome those challenges? I'd like to hear just your take on, you know, are you generally optimistic about the market? Are you seeing the traction you expected? I think that everyone expected from the IRA. Or do you think that's still lagging and still missing? Because like we said earlier, there's not full guidance. So just overall, in a nutshell, I guess, Caitlin, if you want to start, I'd just be curious, what do you think the keys are to unlock the full potential of solar just top down. You can have one, you could have 10. We've talked about a lot of different things in what's your general outlook for, like you said, the rest of this year and the following. I think a lot of it comes down actually to these county level issues that we're dealing with on utility scale combined with kind of state level policies. And then how is this federal policy being implemented by the states? Because the states still have significant power, I think, especially when you're in a state like Virginia or Ohio or a regulated market versus somewhere like Maryland, where I guess the state also plays an important role in Maryland on the CPCN process for permitting of utility scale projects. But I think the elections in November for state level will have a significant impact on how things play out next year. But I don't think it's as simple as a red versus blue issue. A lot of communities in very traditionally conservative areas have actually benefited the most from the scale of renewable energy deployment. And I think you're seeing, for example, in Ohio, there's community solar legislation. I'll be honest, we're not actively involved in community solar. When I heard that was being proposed in Ohio, I was pretty surprised. And last week I saw it's actually being sponsored by two Republicans. That's very interesting to me to see kind of getting that buy-in from both sides of the aisle. But a lot of the problems don't just cease to exist. I think people have an idea that more democratic areas are more pro-solar. And that's not always necessarily the case. I know if we're just talking about land use and zoning, for example, on a county level in Maryland, it can be just as challenging to get those approvals as it can be in a place like Ohio, or maybe even more so. I don't want to make it as simple as NIMBYism, but those kinds of things happen regardless of where you are. So I think it's just understanding where you're working, understanding who the key community pillars are and talking with them and engaging with the community and learning about their histories and their values and what drives them. I've worked in areas where we have, for example, in Ohio, a five-year commitment to do a scholarship for young farmers. And we've worked in some place in Ohio where people are like, that's great. But frankly, we don't really care about that kind of thing because our community is built on this and this and this. So I think it's very important, especially as we continue to deploy renewable energy at scale, that we don't lose sight of that kind of local engagement and learning about what matters to that community as we kind of advocate for solar, solar storage, wind in these rural areas. Awesome. And the thought about that, and then I'll follow up, but I think it was one of the early episodes I was talking to Benoit about, there's some really interesting studies where they can match up people who have, I know it's a little different, but they can match up people who have residential rooftop solar through satellite imagery, and then they can see how they vote. And you'd be shocked to find that it's very 50-50 in most states. And what they found when they dug into that is that it is somewhat bipartisan solar, but each side kind of does it for a different reason, whether it's financial incentives and tax rebates and or just the environment. So I've always said that I think solar is my plug, my personal plug. We all have to come together and realize that we're one industry and there's not all these different 
different subsects because we're getting outspent by in lobbying efforts by oil and gas by an astronomical amount. I think it's like 10,000 to one or something like that. Stephanie probably knows the exact number, but it's a lot. And there is a lot of support for what we're doing, especially in the next generation. I mean, that's why I do it for my children. So hopefully we could find a way forward to avoid some of these challenges. But to ask a more pointed question before we go back over to Stephanie, I'm just curious. I can't tell. Are you optimistic about it? I'll ask it more pointedly. So the IRA came out. Everyone's, you know, celebrating. They're happy. I think it was a big win for renewables in general, although it's a very robust bill. But would you say you are the same level of excitement for it now? Has some of that diminished? Are you just as optimistic as you were then? Or even more pointedly, do you think utility scale will deploy more solar next year than it traditionally has? Yeah, I think I am very optimistic, but maybe not in the same way that most of the industry is. I think there will continue to be significant challenges on the interconnection side. Just a few days ago, MISO announced additional interconnection delays, which is interesting timing given the FERC order that came out last week or the week prior about some the, let's say, penalties related to interconnection delays that will be imposed on RTOs. So I think there continue to be challenges both on the interconnection side and on permitting and kind of on the ground getting the projects built, whether that's supply chain, labor constraints. But I think one of the most exciting things about our industry right now is the growing demand related to electrification. So whether that's EVs, growth in like hyperscale data centers, especially related to AI as a new technology. All of those things are very exciting. I looked at some of the IRPs from seven or eight years ago, and even Dominion now has a separate data center forecast that they're incorporating in their IRPs. That is really exciting to me. I remember when I first started working in solar, someone was telling me, you know, it was a former boss of mine said, you know, we'd worked in in California before. It's kind of like a gold rush. You got to get out there before the queue gets too congested and all the injection capacity is gone. So we're going to do the same thing in this state that we're working in. Luckily, that hasn't really happened. We had, you know, for example, the Virginia Clean Economy Act. I think in places like Ohio, where the level of renewable energy penetration is so low, it's kind of only up from here, especially if our needs for electricity are increasing. We don't even necessarily need some of these more traditional policies that encourage renewable energy deployment, because I think we're getting there regardless of what happens on a state level. So it'll be challenging, but overall, I think very optimistic. This is Benoit. Can you both talk about challenges of interconnection at PGM and the queues and queue reform? Because obviously a lot of people are looking at that market just because it's Pennsylvania, Jersey, and Maryland, and it's prime for renewable energy, solar and wind. Can you talk either to Caitlin or Steph? I know you both have opinions about it. Everyone knows PJM is kind of at a standstill right now. I think we're still seeing, I know FERC has issued their order, but we're still kind of figuring out what it actually means. Will, I think it's a $1,000 a day penalty per project for PJM really make a huge difference? I don't think there's a singular solution. One thing I am excited about potentially is looking at PJM governance reform. I think there are a lot of opportunities We're talking about impacts of states on energy industry as a whole. And you're seeing Republican legislators in Ohio, for example, sending letters to PJM asking them to redo various models and look at the impacts to ratepayers and all of these kinds of things. So I think it'll be interesting to see. I know the RTO Gov Institute at Nicholas Institute and Duke have done studies that show the growth of suppliers has increased so substantially while it's the same transmission owners that existed 100 years ago. So kind of the power dynamic has changed a little bit where those transmission owners are still in a very unique position to influence policy, whereas the suppliers on a per company basis have lost a little bit of that voting power. So 
that's kind of what I'm looking towards. It's similar almost to the IRA where the federal FERC has acted now and it's a matter of seeing how things actually play out. One Another thing I think is interesting is looking at distribution level projects. So project maybe around 15 megawatts and doing clusters of those to avoid some of the transmission delays. So we'll see how it plays out. But I think the good news is everyone is in the same boat to some extent. But the bad news is it might mean potentially extending the lifetime of planned retirements on coal or combined cycle units in order to avoid short-term generation constraints. That's really helpful. Stephanie, it sounds like you wanted to talk about that as well. We mostly deal with the difficulties at PJM impacting our ability to meet state goals. So making sure that state folks understand that delays at PJM require, you know, a shifting of goals, a reevaluation, but it's also very difficult to know how long PJM is going to be slow. You know, will there be like a long jam that breaks and then suddenly projects are moving through or are we just going to be very slow for the next 10 years. And I don't think that we've received any real guidance in regards to that question being answered. I will say one thing that is promising, it seems, is Pepco, for example, has their injection capacity tool. Dominion has a hosting capacity map. And those are both for distribution level projects. But now PJM has announced or it's gone online, I guess, only last quarter. I think they're calling it QPoint. So prior to submitting your interconnection application, you can potentially see what a rough hosting capacity is at that point. I think it saves smaller developers a lot of money on injection studies that they're having performed by third parties. So if they can advance that technology in the next five years, I know AI has been a big conversation of incorporating that into the interconnection studies. I think that's a big avenue for growth that hasn't seen, as I said earlier, I'm not an electrical engineer, but it hasn't seen a lot of attention versus some of the more regulatory items that I think are a little bit more shiny, although you'd imagine it would be the opposite when it comes to AI. That's really also, I think, you know, a lot of people obviously are talking about it and with the IRA and permitting and citing, as well as another complication to it, not just the interconnection reform. So and pilot taxes and all the different things related to developing community solar and utility scale. So maybe we should do like residential programs, make it a lot easier. I mean, it's a combination, Nate. This is actually a combination of both residential. Like look at Virginia. Actually, maybe I've talked about this for a long time, like the rec value and having that and really developing a residential part or commercial industrial in Virginia hasn't been as big as, say, other states like New Jersey with the ESHREC program, Massachusetts, even Maryland as well with their ESHREC program. They probably has other thoughts about it, but it's interesting because you would think it should be all types of solar if that makes sense for reliability and distributed generation. Yeah, but no, I think as we're building these large scale projects, at the same time, we need to be figuring out where on the grid we can add more stability with DERs. And I know a number of developers like EDPR are figuring out, you know, where can we add value on the distributed side since, you know, we're waiting so long in PJM and being able to bridge some of those gaps through distributed generation. And part of that, I think, goes to a broader theme on transparency. If there are these kind of maps, I think developers can better cite their projects when it comes to what provides value to the grid versus overloading a substation that requires, you know, $500 million in interconnection upgrades for a 50 megawatt project. Yeah, well, I think that's a good thing too as well. Like this goes into why should the solar developer pay for all the interconnection upgrade when everyone's getting the benefit from it, which is yeah. obviously an issue too. 
Another thing I'm really excited about is looking at companies like Grid United, founded by Mike Skelly, who previously did Clean Line Energy, and looking at merchant transmission lines. So this is another area where the regulations are so important, especially as it relates like FERC regulations, how the state is actually going to implement that. Will they allow private developers to build their own transmission lines? And then in markets like PJM, how do you monetize that? The revenue model isn't really there yet, especially I think as we talk about fortifying the interconnection infrastructure in the U.S., a big question will be what is the impact to ratepayers? Obviously, ratepayers shouldn't be subsidizing a solar project that doesn't provide any benefits to the grid or to the local community. But in a lot of cases, that's not the case. So how do we kind of allocate those costs? And it looks very different in each of the markets across the U.S. So I think there are also a lot of lessons to be learned from Europe. They're building a lot of high voltage DC lines in Europe right now very successfully. And there are a lot of models there to ensure that one, ratepayers aren't unfairly subsidizing private transmission lines, but also that there are some incentives that are shared with ratepayers if those HVDC lines provide really meaningful benefits to the grid and allow power generation to travel further without the same losses that we see in the current infrastructure. Yeah, I was going to say it's interesting, right? Because Europe, it's a lot simpler than it is here in the U.S. There's no national energy policy in the U.S. other than through the tax code. And then the other issue is each state is different. Each utility is different. Even towns, like just talking about this out loud, I mean, just makes it complicated. It obviously creates opportunities for people who want to do it. The other thing I was going to say, New York actually does a great job of letting people know what the hosting capacity is. I don't know how familiar people are with Vitor, but the value distributed energy. So it really helps like developers figure out where to put projects or not just solar, but battery storage and other things. And I think California is trying to have a similar sort of concept outside of just time abuse versus all in peak off peak. But that's a whole other discussion. We're virtual power plants. Yeah. And it's so funny, though, because I was actually talking. New York has a lot of very interesting permitting reform that has happened in the last few years. And I was actually talking to someone about it earlier this week at an event in Virginia and how we might look to adopt some policies related to permitting from New York into Virginia. And they were like, that's so great. That's a great idea. But you can never mention New York because they will never do anything in Virginia that came from New York. And I'm sure California is probably even more of a hot button suggestion than New York. So I totally agree. So many lessons to be learned from other markets. And then how do we message that to get buy-in from whether it's the public or the legislators or whoever the decision makers are to make a compelling story? I mean, when you talk about transparency and data, that should be something everyone is invested in, right? Ensuring that it's a fair process when it comes to interconnection. So I think you can find a lot of bipartisan. But it's also how do you communicate that to the general public where even me as someone who's worked in this industry for a fair amount of time, I don't know if anyone is 100% an expert in all markets, in all aspects of interconnection and development. It is incredibly complicated. I mean, just since last week in Ohio, other developers have been coming in and explaining PJM. And there is a huge concern that has come up in dozens of meetings I've been in now about power in for these Ohio projects that most likely is going to go to a very large regional employer with renewable energy commitments that everyone knows and feels very comfortable with. But because they've seen PJM, and that's been part of the education on a local level, is PJM being a regional transmission organization stretching from Pennsylvania, parts of North Carolina to parts of Indiana, then that power they're assuming is going to Pennsylvania. So 
in their minds, the solar project being built here is not for us. So even something as simple as a geographic footprint has been very challenging to kind of correct misinformation. So when you go into things like whether it's independent transmission monitors or PJM versus MISO versus NISO, like how do we communicate that, especially in places like Virginia, where the legislator meets for 45 to 60 days? I think it's incredibly challenging. But luckily, we have industry leaders like Stephanie kind of leading the charge, but no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, Nate made a great point. Like this is like so important. And I think Stephanie really appreciates this. We don't have the lobbying dollars as oil and gas and solar. We should come in as one front. But the challenging thing that I've seen, like I've been working with the Department of Energy on the IRA and some of the advisors for the Biden administration. And unfortunately, there's so many different solar people coming to them and telling them different things that they're just confused. We heard this with someone two days ago that this lobbyist was afraid to represent so many different facets of the industry because it is extremely overwhelming to legislators. So it's interesting because I'm seeing like, for example, certain parts of the government basically listening to certain people because they're confused because you have the big utility scale developers, you have energy companies, the residential, everyone's saying different things that are important. So it's just confusing like how to translate for the IRA. And that's why it's actually going to take longer than we expect. I only believe between the first and second quarter of 2023 was we're really going to have concrete sort of guidance on like transferability. Nate and I were talking about this one yesterday. And by the way, like it's just going to be a lot of projects, not residential, but, you know, on the commercial industrial or the regular projects, just going to wait right until everyone understands. And then it takes time for the whole community to understand it. Lawyers, financing parties, the developers. So I don't know what we could do. But no, that's a huge problem that we face at Chesa because we represent the entire industry. So I think historically, CIA and Chesa had been pretty good at being on the ground and talking with legislators. But as the industry has matured over the past 10 years, there's been these splinter groups that are popping up who are only representing this much of the industry. And they're only speaking for, you know, community solar. They're only speaking for utility scale. But to the average government employee or legislator, there's just solar. They don't understand the nuances and the differences. So they're like, who are you and why are you different from so-and-so? And I think it gets very confusing for them. And then they just shut down and they're like, oh, I don't want to listen yeah. to you. You're confusing me. Why don't I just go, you know, to Sia, who I know represents everybody, or Chetha, who's representing everybody and can give me a more holistic picture of how this industry functions. And I see this as a fundamental issue with our industry because more successful industries are very good at putting on a public facing united front. And then they work out their differences internally. And when they come externally, (laughs) a compelling message for what their industry does and why it's important. And I think what we do and why it's important, that's the easiest part of solar to sell. Like we're facing catastrophic issues across the globe because of climate change. We have rising utility bill costs like this is something solar can be a part of and fixing. So why don't we focus on that and sell that message and then figure out internally the nuances of how we want to approach it is how I think that we should handle it. I think that's but that's not happening. Oil and gas looked like, you know, 150 years ago when they were brand new. So I think part of this is growing pains for solar because the technology has been around a long time, but the industry itself has matured pretty aggressively in the past 10 years. So 
as we see more efficiency with panels, when we see more innovation over the next 10 years in what panels look like, you know, peel and stick panels that I saw a couple of weeks ago, what are they going to mean for this industry and how can that us mature? I think the industry 10 years from now will look very different than the growing pains we're facing today. For sure. And even Nate mentioned a great point about this. It's hard to find good people. And by the way, like five years from now, the industry is going to be so much bigger than we could imagine. And so many people from many different industries and finding great people. And obviously we're starting to see this, like people from the technology center. So many have been laid off recently or getting jobs in renewable energy. You have a younger population is very passionate, as Nate said, about sustainability, renewable energy, and they really want to do that. When I was in school, like they didn't have any of this stuff. You know, I was preaching about how great solar was 15 years ago. People are laughing at me, but that's a different story. So yeah, these are all great points, by the way. I mean, this is pretty interesting. It's just the growing pains, as you said, and it's going to take time. And by the way, every energy asset in the United States gets an incentive. People think that fossil fuels and natural gas don't have incentives. So I just get disappointed with the politicians playing games on this, but you're seeing actually a lot of Republican support for renewable energy in these states because they know it's the cheapest form of energy and creates job opportunities. By the way, people don't know that the original investment tax credit or rare grant was actually from George W. Bush's administration, not President Obama, but he extended, obviously. Can I ask a question, Benoit? How do industry conferences today compare to 15 or 20 years ago? Like the people and the conferences generally, the attendance. Is it more business and corporate than it was back then? I don't think so. I think they're bigger, which is one of the premier events for a long time. And just the sheer growth has been wild. And I attracts people from all sectors like you're talking about. It's not just solar, but there's bankers and finance people and attorneys and everyone comes to learn more about the industry and what their role is. You know, I think this year I would expect RE Plus in Vegas just to be break records yet again for the amount of people. I think there's gonna be a ton of talk about jobs just like last year, domestic manufacturing, I think is going to be massive, things like that. So it's just kind of shifted a bit. And I do think that you're seeing more and more folks from outside the industry coming in and you're seeing more and more things happen domestically. But I think one of the other shows I went to was the RE Plus, the regional event up in Austin this year was massive. I couldn't believe, I remember going the first time or one of the first times I went, I know one of the years we were like the platinum sponsor or whatever for that event. And it felt like there was you know, hundred people there and like three booths. And now it's just, you can sit in the lobby and watch people all day. It's just packed. It's like a beehive. So pretty soon they're going to need a bigger spot, but that's how I've seen it. It evolve. I think it feels like COVID put a little damper in some of the trade shows, but you're seeing even more pop up. And I think that RE plus continues to be the flagship conference. Like I said, I expect it's a big record attendance again this year. So what's interesting was Anaheim was RE Plus last year, which is probably the first event after COVID. And I talked to Sia about it and about 28,000 people registered for that event. I would say though, people who didn't register, but were there must've been like 33 to 34,000 people. I remember going to Anaheim maybe eight and 10 years ago, and it was 10,000 people. And most of the people at that point are just pro sustainability. So I think it was like you had less suits, less boots, 
It's just people who are really passionate about what they were doing. So you see a lot more suits. I'm like surprised at these conferences because I love the casual sort of attire. Does it so, you your days at Goldman? <laughs> but, but. I actually never worked at Goldman, but I worked at a hedge fund called D.E. Shaw. Okay. And I used to wear a Patrick Ewing jersey to work or different Knicks jerseys. You've always been a trendsetter. <laughs> and then obviously Tesla and then Deloitte. I worked at a private equity fund in renewables. I had to wear a suit every day, but obviously no one wears a suit. But I do let business casual. So if you have an opportunity, you should definitely attend RE+. It's coming up September 11th to 14th in Las Vegas. But before that, you should actually go to the Chessa conference. So you should go to RE Plus in Las Vegas first. And then when you recover fully, you'll be ready for Solar Focus in Baltimore November 15th through 17th. So can you talk a little bit about that event and how people can find more information? We'll obviously have that notes of the podcast as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the main benefits to the regional conferences is the ability to connect with the local lawmakers. So we'll have a number of legislators. We'll have the staff at the PSC on the ground and along with some of our colleagues at the utilities talk about, you know, what's planned for Maryland, how it impacts companies. And when you attend, you get the ability to interface directly with these folks who are otherwise, you know, might not feel as comfortable being candid and honest with you, but you just see them in the hallway at Solar Focus I think there's a very collegial environment at our conference. This will be the 17th year that we're hosting it. So people have an expectation that they'll come, they'll bond with folks across the energy space. So it's not just solar. You know, we have EV folks who come and we talk about grid reliability and we talk about how solar fits in to the push for electrification and what needs to happen in Maryland to get us from point A to point B. Hopefully the governor will come. I'm begging him to come. Yeah, that's another good point of what I've noticed. I think it was the last RE Plus in Vegas where traditionally it was just solar panel manufacturers. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's like more batteries than solar panels. It felt like sure there wasn't. But you're seeing the emergence of these new technologies that are just continuing to drive innovation in the space. And I think that's not to be overlooked as well. Definitely. That's a great point. I think you're going to see more batteries on the show. I think the other big thing why to attend RE Plus is pretty much everyone from the industry is attending. So it's easy to set up meetings with people than having to travel, obviously, to meet them. A lot of international companies are coming. I'm getting inundated by international companies wanting to meet at RE Plus. Stephanie, I know you were in Pennsylvania for RE Pluses, Pennsylvania. That is there any sort of key takeaways? I knew you spoke as well. And there's a line of people out the door wanting to speak to you afterwards. The main takeaway is the interest in the Mid-Atlantic, especially Maryland, with the passage of the permanent community solar program. Developers from Massachusetts and New York are interested in coming into Maryland, but they don't necessarily understand, you know, the local market. They don't understand what it means for their business. They don't understand what these permitting challenges might mean for their ability to deploy here. And I think that's where Chesa fits in and is such a good partner because we've been boots on the ground for so many years. We know the nuances on the county level. We know those officials. We can give advice on how to approach different issues. Like in certain counties, if it's over two megawatts, your project can go through a CPCN and that's probably your only viable option. And then in other counties, the counties are very friendly and you could probably just permit it through them. 
But what we're seeing is in those friendly counties, we're reaching capacity for interconnection. And if we have three friendly counties and we have available land, but no interconnection, then we're going to have to look at CPCN issues in various other counties. So what I saw at RA Plus Mid-Atlantic was just a huge amount of interest from developers who are interested in coming into Maryland. So I'm happy to serve as a resource for them and get them plugged in. Is there anything else we should talk about or that we haven't got over? I talk to you all day, Benoit. Uh, uh, Nate and I, by the way, could talk for hours and hours. Like we should just have a film crew following us when we're together. And by the way, we normally meet for an activity. So it's weird for me to actually see him on Zoom. Last time we were on the New York Giants sideline and Nate was like watching the commander's game. It was like in awe. It's a battle experience. Same thing, I took Caitlin to her first Yankee game yeah. in Sweden with some of the Yankee players, former players there. You became good friends with Doc Gooden. Oh, one of you my have a crazy memory, Benoit, because I remember you spitting out all the Yankee statistics. And then when we were at the Solar Farm Summit in Chicago a few months ago, we ran into Dennis Rodman. And I realized you don't just know all the Yankee statistics. You also know all the Chicago Bulls statistics. Now I can understand what the finance background, the photographic memory all kind of ties together. And it's great for relationship building with Dennis Rodman because I heard you might get an invite to his ranch in Houston. (laughs) Yes, I'm still working on that. Dennis Rodman was at the Agro-Botanics Conference in Chicago. He just happened to be there. He was signing shoes and then he basically stays at that hotel. But he was in awe of the Solar Conference and he actually owns a big ranch. And he was telling actually Dan French and I his views on agrovotics. And he asked whether he could be the keynote speaker next year at the conference. So I'm still actually working on that. What I took out of that is you know more about agrovoltaics than you guys let on earlier when I asked oh, the question. Sure. Had I known this story first, there would have been many follow-ups. Well, I could have started the first half an hour on. So actually, we have a solar podcast, solar maverick podcast interview about dual-use farming. It's actually the most downloaded podcast with Ian Ward and Oma Drew. Basically, they're the first ones to do agrovoltaics in Massachusetts and Drew from Blue Wave, but he's out of Blue Wave anymore. Dan and I are going to talk about agrovoltaics in the next podcast and talk about Dennis Rodman. The thing is, agriculture is so complex. Like it is so complex. Your average person, the same way your average person doesn't grasp how complex interconnection is. I don't think the average person grasps how complex agriculture is. It's chemistry, biology, logistics, like super early mornings, lots of hard work, equipment that you have to maintain. The technology, the equipment is incredible. So that's one thing I really appreciate about my job. I find it fascinating spending time in some of these communities because, I mean, I've probably gone on hundreds of trips to rural areas before and hundreds of farms. I have never not learned something that's like mind-blowing. <laughs> and the agrovoltaics conference was mind-blowing. We had 500 people for the first agrovoltaics. It was sold out. Yeah, they had a poster session and it was like 50 posters and none of them, I don't know, when I was in college, there's a handful of things people always look at for their research projects. I mean, agrivoltaics, it's same as solar. It spans so many different facets of the industry. Oh, for sure. We're definitely going to do that some other time, for sure. Well, Dan and I are. Check out Ian Ward and Drew Pearson's. We'll have that link if you really want to learn about dual-use agrivoltaics. And Benoit, you can host that agrivoltaics podcast at Solar Focus. You know, farmers love it because You're taking non-arid land and finding uses for it and then also using arid land. It's interesting and it's not just sheep and grazing. And it helps preserve generational farming in a time where 
very challenging. Seeing like young people start their own operations that are related, whether it's grazing or vegetation management or agrivoltaics in some of these communities, it's just incredible. I mean, there was someone I met with a few months ago in Indiana. They're like, oh, you know, so-and-so always had a thing for sheep grazing and 4-H growing up. And he had 12 sheep up until like a year and a half ago. And now he has like 250 and multiple people working for him and all this equipment. He was able to afford all of that with one solar project. And now he's booked out for the next like however many years until he hires more employees. So, I mean, I don't think people think about those kinds of stories. You know, we get so caught up in misinformation about solar and correcting it. I think if people in local communities had a chance to understand the impact of a solar project, I think it could go a long way towards our longevity as an industry. I agree. And this is why this podcast is here. This is why One Ear is doing great work and keep it going because I think people are seeing it. There were a lot of farmers after that event. Ian's actually a farmer himself. So it's easier to communicate as well. And farmers see the benefit, especially with the struggles of farming in the U.S. This is an opportunity for them to have stable income, to be able to cover their expenses and not just subsidies from the U.S. government. And farming land is, by the way, going to be very important, especially with land and the population and also international tensions with other countries as well. Yeah, I feel like having someone who's farmed previously being able to speak to other farmers is super. It's like having a finance person talking to another finance person. It's very different. language that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this has been an amazing episode of the Solar Podcast. I appreciate all of you making the time. Stephanie and Caitlin, like what's the best way if people want to learn more about Chessa Hudson Energy or both of you personally will also have this on, on the notes of the podcast as well with Nate's contact information at his company and amazing podcast. Well, Hudson Energy's website is just Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, energy.com. So feel free to check us out. That has some more information about our projects and the work we're doing, as well as our LinkedIn. We also have Twitter and Facebook pages now that are highlighting some of the awesome work we're doing in the local communities that we are citing projects in. And for Chessa, we are www.chessa.org. Great. Thank you, Nate. Do you want to have any parting words? No. As always, appreciate it and look forward to seeing you down here soon. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think can benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown.